I confess that the first few times I saw that passage and that question that Jesus ended with, do you still not understand? I, I was embarrassed. I thought, no, I still don't understand. I, I, think the, I think the key is in that phrase, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. In his letter to the Galatian church, Paul warned of another gospel. He said, I'm astonished that you've so quickly deserted and turned to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He said, people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if anyone should come to you and preach any other gospel, whether we ourselves or an angel from God himself, and they preach any other gospel to you than the one you've embraced and the one you already know, let them be cursed. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. The gospel, said Paul, uh, is not something that begins on earth. It begins in heaven. It doesn't start with a problem. It starts with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a conglomeration of ideas that humans teach to one another and then stockpile one on top of the other. The gospel begins in Jesus Christ, and it is the revelation of Christ to the world. So the gospel is not a set of ideas. It's not a theology. It's not a proposition. The gospel, Paul said to the Thessalonians, is the power of God that comes with deep convictions. The gospel is not about changing things on the surface. It's about changing things inside of a person so that from the inside out, we become different people. When the gospel is heard and when it is believed, it completely changes our instincts. It changes our desires. We have different desires. It changes the way we see the world. It changes our biases. It takes over our minds. It arrests our careers. And so whatever you're going to run into tomorrow, whatever your job or your gift is, the gospel co-ops that and brings it into something that is bigger than you and it's longer than you. So the gospel, when it is preached fearlessly and when people believe it, cannot be stopped. Paul says it goes out into all the world, into regions beyond you. It is not the private possession of one person or one church or one tribe. It is the revelation of God to the world. So we never really bring the gospel to someone. We never really share the gospel with someone. As if it were this body of knowledge that we possess and they do not and we have to share that with them because we know and they don't know 
We never bring the gospel to someone. We go with them wherever they're going and we find it there because God has revealed himself in every person, every tribe, every longing, every custom and every tradition. God is already there. It's a matter of finding it and putting the pieces together. And once people see it, it changes them and it cannot be stopped. But it can be distorted. It can be redirected, corrupted, adapted, hijacked. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Jesus said it a handful of times, and not always about the Pharisees, once about the Sadducees, once about Herod. And sometimes he said it when they were talking about bread, but not always. Sometimes, like in Luke chapter 12, he brings up the yeast of the Pharisees when nobody mentioned bread at all. It seems to be a powerful metaphor that he just reached for. It's as if Jesus knew that yeast has a certain quality or a nature about it all its own, and the Pharisees have it too. And maybe that's why he mentioned the Pharisees and Herod in the same verse, when in fact they have almost nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. They lived in different worlds. They had two entirely different ideologies, but they had this in common. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. What is it? Some years ago, it was pretty common among church people to share what they called friendship bread. Have you heard of this stuff? This stuff is nasty. It, I mean, now don't come up afterwards and say, no. Some years ago, I came home and there was a baggie, a clear baggie on the counter, and it had this milky... Um, Mm. And I was going to throw it away, and my wife said, no, don't throw that away. I'm going to do something with that. <laughs> I said, what? what is it? She said, it's a starter for friendship bread. I'm going to make friendship bread. <laughs> I said, baby, whoever gave you that is not your friend, man. Look at that stuff. I mean, think about it. Whatever that does to the bread is going to do to your stomach. No. So I started calling it rock gut bread. And she said, but have you ever tasted it? And I said, well, of course not. She said, well, how do you know you won't like it? I said, what? Well, I've never drank gas, and I'm pretty sure I don't like that. I mean, some things, you just see it, you smell it, and you know that is not human. That rich acetone smell. Mm. The power of that starter is yeast. 
Yeast is a live cell which lies dormant in the package when you buy it in the store. And the second you put it in warm water with sugar, it comes alive and that live cell starts to eat the sugar. When you mix the yeast inside of dough, the yeast starts to eat the sugar that is in the dough, and as it does this, it emits carbon dioxide, which is what causes the dough to rise. It's what creates the bubbles in the bread when you cut it. You know now? So the power of yeast is not to resist something, it's exactly the opposite. The power of yeast is to enter something, feed off of it, release something of its own, and by doing this, it changes the shape of the thing it entered. So the yeast of the Pharisees is not their stubborn refusal to believe. It is their clever intelligence to enter the gospel when they hear it. To feed off of it. To release into it something of its own and change the shape of the gospel. The yeast of the Pharisees is not their unbelief, as many insist. It's their misbelief. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus. It's that they can't believe in Jesus because they already believe in other things. They already have a handful of convictions. And everything Jesus says, they slide those convictions into his words and they co-opt it. They distort it. They redirect it. Dilute it. Beware the human tendency to hold on to a set of convictions and then judge everything somebody tells you by those convictions. They will keep you from hearing what is true because when you hear it, you'll keep injecting your own convictions into the gospel. And you won't stop it. You'll redirect it. You'll dilute it. Corrupt it. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Well, when I figured that out, I started wondering, what exactly did the Pharisees believe? I mean, where did they come from? And what were these pocket full of convictions that they had and everything Jesus said, they just sort of charged his words with their agenda and distorted it. Let me tell you really quickly. 200 years before Jesus arrived, Israel was struggling to be free. They were in a series of revolutions called the Maccabean Revolt. They were trying to liberate themselves from the oppressive Romans. So they went around the country and they rallied a bunch of young men to join forces with them and they conducted guerrilla-like warfare against Roman soldiers. 
And for a while, they were wildly successful. They took a lot of land back that the Romans were occupying. But after a while, the Romans had had enough of it. And because they were bigger and stronger, they put an end to the revolt. And it was over. As a result, a bunch of little splinter groups rose up within Israel trying to win Israel back again to its roots. These splinter groups were different. Some of them were militaristic, they were violent. Some of them were separatist. Some of them were deeply religious. Some of them were political. But all of them had one agenda in common. They were going to win Israel back to its state of glory. They were going to restore the glory to Israel that she had before. Now the Pharisees were one of those little splinter groups that came out of the revolution. And their idea was that if they could call Israel back to its conservative agenda, if they could call Israel back to its Bible, back to its Torah, the practice of the Bible, they would make Israel exceptional again. She would be peculiar among all nations. And so the Pharisees began to develop little rules that they attached to verses in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, so they could teach Israel how to live like God. Believing that if they could do it, Israel would once again be peculiar from all other nations and would be like a city on a hill that the nations would look to. So when Jesus showed up and started saying things like, no, no, the kingdom of God is not political. The kingdom of God is within you. And I am the new Moses that God has sent to redeem Israel from her captivity. Because Israel's problem is not its oppressors. Israel's problem is itself. It has walked away from the covenant almighty God made with her. And it has walked into bondage. And I have come to lead us out. Well, that didn't go well with the Pharisees because they had in their mind a vision of a preferred future and nothing Jesus was saying was even addressing anything they considered relevant. He would preach and the Pharisees thought they knew what the problems were and they knew what God should do to fix those problems. And Jesus would start talking about all of these extraneous and spiritual things. And the Pharisees would think, why don't you say something relevant just once? Why don't you address the subject that we are all talking about? 
But Jesus had a completely different agenda. He wasn't trying to reform Israel. He was trying to change its soul. He was trying to change the nation's nature. This is why Jesus never performed a sign among them. It's not because he was angry. It's because he was bankrupt. He had already performed signs. The Pharisees had already seen him raise the dead, raise up a leper, raise a paralytic, calm the storm, and cast out demons. That ought to be enough. But when they came to him one more time and said, show us a sign, they weren't looking for any ordinary sign. They were looking for some evidence that he was the fulfillment of their expectations. And that is why Jesus would not perform the sign, because they were wrong about their expectations. How do you impress someone who is wrong about what they're looking for? You're bankrupt. There's nothing else you can do. There were two miracles in particular, very much the same, that they should have looked at. And they missed them. One was the feeding of 5,000. Another was the feeding of 4,000. They were the same because both miracles involved a multitude of people sitting on the hill that were starving and longing for food. In both miracles, Jesus shows up and with deep compassion turns to the disciples and says, don't send them away, you feed them. In both miracles, there is bread somewhere in the multitude. Somebody has brought a lunch that is not just for them, only they don't know it. So in both miracles, Jesus says, what do you already have? And they bring to him bread, five loaves of bread in the first one, seven loaves of bread in the second one, and then in a series of weird ritual movements, Jesus does the same thing in both miracles. He takes the bread and then he blesses it and then he breaks it and then he gives it away. Only when he gives it away, it doesn't run out. He just keeps giving. In other words, it's when the bread is broken that it's multiplied. Jesus did say something about unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, if it is broken, it feeds many. If it dies, it lives. And if it protects its own life, it dies. There is so much food that the disciples have to go afterwards and pick up baskets of leftover food. These miracles are alike, I say, in almost every way except one. 
in the first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it was performed to mostly Jews in the area of the Sea of Galilee. But in the feeding of the 4,000, it was performed near the Decapolis, which is 10 cities, all Gentiles. So the first miracle was to the Jews, and the second miracle was to the Gentiles. And therein lies the genius of the miracle. Jesus is coming to the world that is starving for life, and they can't find it. He is giving himself for the life of the world. But the way that he will do it is not by rising in prominence. It is by putting himself down and allowing himself to be broken so that his life could be multiplied. He will not just attract people to himself. He will die and divest his life inside of other people people. And he will do this not to redeem the nation of Israel, but to redeem a nation that is within Israel and a nation that is comprised of all nations, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, clergy and laity, Educated and simple, Jesus is bringing together an entirely new nation that does not belong to any geographical place on the planet. It is a new body of people. This is his gospel. You couldn't make that stuff up, but you could distort it. You could take it and adapt it. You could make it serve that agenda that you've already got in your pocket. Now, I got to tell you, this is, this is, well, I wonder if this is what we've done. In the last two years, I've watched our nation, and many of us good Christian people fighting and arguing about things on both sides of an issue. And it used to be that we just didn't agree with each other, but what's happened over the last couple of years is that we barely trust each other. Today, an unprecedented number of people now report that if the other side wins this argument, the country is lost. It has never been that polarized as it is today. Some people are talking about America's original sin of racism and colonialism, but the other side is coming back and saying, no, what's happening in all of that is the rise of a new Marxism. Some people want to kneel when we sing the national anthem, others want to bring the flag into the church and ask God to bless America. Some people are talking about the redistribution of wealth. Other people push back and say, no, no, we have to put America back to work again. Some people are saying, America first. America is exceptional of all nations. And other people are saying, 
America is lost. America's been cursed. Some people are complaining about children being separated from parents at the border, and the other side pushes back and says, no, no, it's just that we have too many people coming through the border. And I wish I was just talking about people in the world, but I'm talking about people in the church. I'm talking about things that we have heard, tropes that we've picked up, and then we've released And in all of this talk, it's like another kind of prophet has arisen. It's a prophet with a good cause, a prophet for social justice, a prophet for nationalism. It's a prophet with an agenda. Lord, Lord, have I not cast out demons in your name? Have I not healed people in your name? But they don't know him. And he doesn't know them. And I worry that in all of this talk about one cause or another, we have reduced Jesus to a means to an end. But the gospel, church, is that Jesus is the end. He is not just the means. He is not the patriot. He is not the crusader. He is the king of the world himself, and he is the point. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him were all things created. Nothing was created that he did not make. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the first one back from the dead. It is Christ who is the point. Reconciliation matters, but it's not possible outside of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has reconciled the two. He has torn down the wall of hostility that separates us, the barrier that divides us, and he has created in himself one new person out of the two. He has preached peace to the haves and peace to the have-nots so that together we both have access to one Father through one Holy Spirit. We talk about being on the right side of history, but history does not end in some utopian vision that we have made for ourselves. The Bible says history ends at the foot of a throne who is Christ himself. And I looked before me, said John, and there was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language. And they stood in front of the throne, and then they bowed themselves down, and they said, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Jesus is not a way to accomplish some cause. He is the cause. Anytime the outcome of the gospel is more interesting than Jesus, the yeast is at work. Anytime we reduce the gospel to something humans must do, 
And Jesus becomes a poster child. An endorsement. Oh, because Jesus said. Gosh, am I glad he said that. Because that lines up perfectly with what I was just going to say. We have missed the gospel. Whenever Jesus loses his capacity to shock you, to confront you, whenever you see in the words of Jesus the sins of another and you cannot see your own, the yeast is at work. I wonder if we've minimized the impact of the gospel by making it a cause. We make it about something that if we can all just finally agree and get together and do the right thing, the world will be safe and everyone will be happy. But the gospel is about changing the heart of an individual until their instincts, desires, and ways of seeing the world are fundamentally different. This is why we can't change anything until God changes us. Me. You. Start there. All these things you believe in, you do them. You do them. And God will empower your actions. And you'd be surprised how quickly that'll spread. Church, can I introduce you one more time to the gospel you first believed, to the one you believe in now, buried underneath all of those causes that, like yeast, you keep sliding into the words of Jesus. Can I introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man. Can I introduce you to one who is the pinnacle of everything else and who proves it, not by rising above the rest of us, but by dying and getting under all of us and causing us to rise. Can I introduce you to Christ? Can I reintroduce you to what you already believe?